Welcome back to our equipping hour, calling Behold Your King, some studies in Messianic prophecy. Pray that it's been a helpful, profitable time so far. Looking at a couple more prophetic passages this morning, looking at Ezekiel 17 and Ezekiel 21. Why look at those two passages? Well, kind of two reasons. Uh, One, hopefully, so that you become more familiar with two chapters you probably aren't that familiar with. Uh, I say Ezekiel 17 and 21, you're like, I don't really remember those chapters. Uh, Well, hopefully you will remember them, know more of them uh, this morning. That's one. Two, second reason, this is kind of the whole purpose for the class, that we would see how pervasive the messianic hope is in the Old Testament. Messianic hope is not isolated to a text here or a text there. It's everywhere in the Old Testament, okay? Um, It's all over the place. Not just Genesis 3.15 or 2 Samuel 7. It's everywhere. Uh, The Davidic covenant that is that passage in 2 Samuel 7 I mentioned clarifies that these promises to Abraham of land, seed, blessing, they're going to come through the Davidic king, okay? Well, if the Davidic king is gone, we don't have one, then those promises can't be fulfilled, right? So you start to see the importance in the Old Testament of the Davidic king. Like, hey, we kind of need this guy for these promises to come true. So if he's not there, we have a problem, okay? And that's why the prophets talk about the Davidic king so much. It also shows that the prophets, they didn't have a vague hope on the other side of judgment. We talked about that in Isaiah, right? Judgment is coming now, but we have hope on the other side of that judgment. It's not just a feeling of like, man, we really hope God would be kind of nice to us. Like, please, fingers crossed. No, that's not what's going on. They actually have specific promises in Scripture. They're saying, Lord, please bring your king. We need him to rule and reign. You know, for all the promises of God come through that person, this king, the Messiah. By extension, it comes to Israel and then to all the nations. So their hope is focused on that Davidic king. And that's why we're looking at more obscure passages this morning like Ezekiel 17 and 21. So that's just kind of a refresher, reminder why we're doing what we're doing. Before we do that, let me pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for bringing us here this morning that we can look at these passages, Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel 21, passages that we're probably not the most familiar with. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand these passages that are uh, complex in some parts. Lord, I pray that it would be illumined to us by your Holy Spirit. We would know your word, we would treasure it truly, and we would love our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, more as a result. We ask you to bless this time. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. All right. Actually, before we get into Ezekiel, uh, one quick note on Isaiah 7.14 from, from last week. Someone had a really good question. If you guys remember seven, Isaiah 7.14, that's that passage dealing with the virgin birth. The language there in the ESV says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, linguistically, it seems like that could be saying, you know, a lady who is a virgin is going to conceive in the normal biological way. Like, she's going to sleep with a man, and she is going to be pregnant, give birth to a son, okay? Linguistically, it could be saying that. It's a good question. I probably should have spent a little bit more time uh, looking at it. I want to do that just briefly here this morning. Uh, The word translated conceive is the Hebrew word hara. It's used 45 times in the Old Testament, okay? So by no means is it used just this one time. It's used all throughout the Old Testament. It can be used as a verb. It can be used as an adjective. 
could translate it a number of ways, but they all pretty much mean the same thing, right? You could translate it, someone's become pregnant, or they've conceived, they're with child, they're expecting. The point is this, you're with child, okay? You're pre- like, it's not rocket science, we know what that means. All this 2023, people are getting more and more confused. Maybe we do <laughs> need to define this word more, but the person's pregnant, okay? The lady is pregnant. She is expecting a child. Now, perhaps how it's translated in, in the ESV is maybe tripping you up. The virgin shall conceive. Well, that's what normally happens. A virgin sleeps with a man, she becomes pregnant. And yes, that's usually normally what happens. But perhaps translating the word differently helps you see more of what's going on here in Isaiah. You could just simply say the virgin, in fact, a more wooden translation would be the virgin is pregnant. The, the virgin is with child, okay? And she's going to bear a son and give birth. Isaiah 7.14 is trying to stress that a virgin, that is a lady who has not slept with a man, is pregnant. Okay, That's what he's trying to say. Uh, the word hurrah in and of itself does not actually indicate that you know, sexual intercourse took place in the immediate context. Now we understand, right? I'm not going against this. That's the normal way things happen, right? Like that's how people become pregnant. Okay, so we get that, okay? But the context here, Isaiah 7.14 helps us understand what is Isaiah trying to say, okay? Let me just give you a couple other examples of how the word is just trying to say this person's pregnant, okay? Genesis 16.11, Abraham and Hagar. It says, and the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant, okay? Same word in Isaiah 7.14. He's just saying, you're with child. You are expecting a baby. Now, we know contextually in Genesis 16, Abraham has just slept with Hagar, okay? We understand that. But the word is just trying to say this person's pregnant. You tracking with me? The person's pregnant, okay? Another example, Genesis 25, 21, Isaac and Rebekah. It says, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived, or hurrah, okay? Clearly here, there's what? Divine intervention, he prays, the Lord grants that prayer, she becomes pregnant. It's, it isn't saying Rebecca slept with her husband and conceived. I'm guessing that's exactly what happened, okay? Because that's the normal way God works through uh, the biological means, okay? She became pregnant, she is now with child, okay? That's the whole point of this word, that's how this normally happens. So when we hear she's pregnant or she conceived, that's what we think of, but... The whole point of Isaiah 7.14 is that this woman is going to be pregnant in not that way. She is going to be a virgin and become pregnant while being a virgin, okay? That's what the language of Isaiah 7.14 is trying to say. It's not saying that the virgin lost her virginity to become pregnant. It's a striking prophecy because it's saying the exact opposite. The virgin who has not lost her virginity will be pregnant. Does that make sense? Okay. Maybe for some of you it's like, I get it. I got it. Well, and maybe now you're more confused than ever. And now I'm, you know, I don't know. I just wanted to, to clarify that before we got into Ezekiel. If you have more questions, more than happy to talk to you. Okay, Ezekiel 17. Turn there if you haven't already. Ezekiel 17. The parable of the two eagles and the vine. Maybe you'll realize, hey, the parables of Jesus aren't the only ones in the Bible. No, there's actually some other ones. Uh, Ezekiel actually uses the word parable twice. Um, and so this is one of those instances. Some context on Ezekiel, what is going on. Uh, Ezekiel and Daniel uh, and other Jews, they've actually already been taken into exile by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Uh, the 
first three verses, actually, of Ezekiel 1 tell us this. This is what's happened. They are now in Babylon, in captivity. It's key to remember that the exile to Babylon happens in a couple different waves, okay? So the big final wave, maybe I'll, I'll ask. Does anyone remember? When's the big final wave of exile? What's the big date? Not 722 B.C. That's what, 586, boom, good job. Yep, remember that. 586 B.C. is when Judah, that main final uh, deportation to Babylon happens. Well, Ezekiel and Daniel have actually been taken to Babylon before that date, okay? Probably 10, 15 years, we can't know exactly, uh, but they're already in exile um, before the main uh, exile happens. So this book is written from the perspective of exile. Ezekiel 1, the first three verses make that very clear. Ezekiel is filled with a lot of sad descriptions. Sorry to be a downer this morning, but you read Ezekiel and there's a lot of sad things. There's a lot of sin going on. In fact, Ezekiel 16, the chapter right before the one we're looking at, is probably one of the most graphic depictions of spiritual adultery in all of Scripture. I mean, it is not rated R, it is rated X. Um, Ezekiel is very clear in his language of how sinful spiritual adultery is. And so similar to that message in Isaiah last week, judgment is coming now. There is not hope on the immediate horizon. Judgment is coming for Israel for God's people now, there's hope on the other side of that judgment. Ezekiel himself is actually kind of an embodiment of that hope, um, in part. Uh, he demonstrates through the work of the Holy Spirit in the book of Ezekiel that the, the key to solving Israel's sin problem of the heart is actually the Holy Spirit changing our hearts. You see that all throughout Ezekiel, uh, and he embodies that hope. But in the near future, judgment is coming. Ezekiel here is foretelling the demise of the Davidic dynasty. So Ezekiel 17. You can find, by the way, I'm not going to spend time in this, but you can find the historical narrative part of this in 2 Kings 24 and 25. Okay? So if you want to see the corresponding historical, this happened and this happened and then this happened, 2 Kings 24 and 25. And that's looking at the reigns of Jehoiachin and Zedekiah. Those are two names to remember for this morning. Two kings in Judah, that southern tribe, Jehoiachin and Zedekiah. So I'm going to read through this chapter verse by verse. Is anyone familiar with Ezekiel 17? I mean, if you've read through your Bible, you've read it. But I'm guessing you're going to read through this. You're like, I don't really remember this chapter. Okay. So Ezekiel 17, I thought it would be good if we spend some time in it. 17 verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Now at this point, we're all going, great. This book is already difficult, and now he's telling us a riddle, like it's like doubly difficult. And by the way, it's not even one riddle, there's two riddles. You're like, ah! No, we can understand this, okay? Don't worry. We got this. We can do this. Verse 3. Say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. Verse 4. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Okay, I'm going to explain what's going on here. I just want to let you know, I'm not pulling this out of nowhere. Ezekiel actually explains in the latter half of this chapter what everything that he's saying means. I'm just going to clue you in a little bit before that, okay? What we're calling this is the riddle of the twig, okay? That's what I have there on your notes, the riddle of the twig. This first great eagle is Nebuchadnezzar, okay? That first eagle is Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon. Lebanon represents the royal family, the Davidic dynasty, the Davidic dynasty in Jerusalem. 
at the top of the cedar, he mentions that as well. Think of like a little branch or a twig. So I'm calling it the riddle of the twig. That gets broken off and it's taken to a city. That stands for King Jehoiachin, okay? So you've got the first great eagle. That is Nebuchadnezzar. You've got Lebanon. That stands for uh, the Davidic dynasty. And people wonder, it's like, why? I didn't have this in my notes, but why Lebanon? Well, actually, when the temple is built, Solomon, where does he get the lumber from? Lebanon, because Lebanon is known for its wonderful trees and all this stuff. So I think that's why it's being referred to it that way. That's Jerusalem, the Davidic dynasty. And then you've got the top of the twig, the branch, okay, that's broken off. That's King Jehoiachin. Tracking with me? Got it? Okay. Uh, And you can read this, by the way, in 2 Kings 24. This is exactly what happens. Nebuchadnezzar, he comes, he besieges Jerusalem. He eventually takes Jehoiachin captive to Babylon. So Ezekiel is describing what has happened historically, okay? This is what has happened, okay? This is the twig riddle, okay? So just put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that. The twig riddle, okay? Verse 5. Then he, that's the eagle, that's Nebuchadnezzar, he took of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig. It sprouted and became a low-spreading vine. And its branches turned toward him, and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. Here's our second riddle, the vine riddle. The riddle of the vine. This is referring to not King Jehoiachin, King Zedekiah. Okay? That is who is being referred to by this vine, King Zedekiah. In 2 Kings 25, after Nebuchadnezzar takes Jehoiachin with him to Babylon, he installs Jehoiachin's uncle, Jezedekiah, as king. Okay? So Jehoiachin, taken to captivity, Nebuchadnezzar places his uncle kind of as like a puppet king in Israel. Does that make sense? That's what's going on. Okay? Zedekiah is being referred to as this vine. He really has no power. He's under the power of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this is important. Track with me here. This is the way the Hebrew Bible does things like this. And just, I know we're English, and so this isn't the way we normally do things, but this is the way they normally do things. This is what we call a chiasm, okay? So he gives the riddle of the twig, then he gives the riddle of the vine. He's going to explain the riddle of the vine, and then explain the riddle of the twig, okay? So it's kind of like point A, point B, point B is explained, and then point A. Does that make sense? That's not how I would explain things. It would confuse everyone if I did that. Uh, But that's the way Ezekiel does this, okay? So he's going to first explain the riddle of the vine, what does all this mean, and then second, the riddle of the twig. That riddle of the twig, verses 22, 23, and 24, is the messianic text, which we're trying to get to. Pick up with me in verse 7. And there is another great eagle. Like, okay, I can't keep track of all these eagles. Okay, this is the king of Egypt, okay? So first eagle, Nebuchadnezzar. Second eagle, king of Egypt, Pharaoh. Okay? There was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine, who is that? Zedekiah. Friends, tracking with me. Okay? That's the vine, Zedekiah. He bent its roots toward him, towards the king of Egypt, and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters, that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine, okay? So here's what's going on. Zedekiah, he'd been planted by Nebuchadnezzar. He's now reaching out to the king of Egypt. Those of you who are familiar with 
the Old Testament, is it generally good when Israel goes to Egypt for help? No, that's not what you want to do. What we would love to read in this passage is Zedekiah cried out to the Lord for help. He did not do that. He cries out to this great eagle, which is Pharaoh, okay? Yeah, um, yeah, Israel never learns. Uh, Isaiah 31 literally says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and trust in chariots, but not the Holy One of Israel. Zedekiah is, is doing exactly that. So you already know, this probably isn't gonna go well, okay? This is an ominous note. What's going on here? Verse nine, say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive, this vine? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away on the bed where it sprouted? <laughs> Maybe at this point, you're, like, I, I, you're thinking like, I think so? I'm not sure exactly what's going on. I'm, I don't know exactly how to respond. Okay, just keep reading. Verse 11. This is where the riddle starts to become made clear. Verse 11. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them. Behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them uh, to him in Babylon. Okay, he's talking about Jehoiachin. That happened. Verse 13, he took one of the royal offspring, that's Zedekiah, made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. But he, that's Zedekiah, rebelled against him, Nebuchadnezzar, by sending his ambassadors to Egypt, that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? He's unpacking the riddle. He's explaining, here's what has happened in the past. Zedekiah has rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. He sent messengers to Egypt asking for help. This is not going to go well for him. So now, verses 16 to 21, he's going to tell us what's going to happen. This is prophecy. Ezekiel is saying this is what is going to transpire. Verse 16, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant with him he broke in Babylon, he shall die. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in war when, he, when his mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives. He despised the oath in breaking the covenant and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. I will spread my net over him and he shall be taken in my snare and I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind, and you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken. It's a fascinating text. I, God makes it very clear that he's actually the one in control of Nebuchadnezzar. He is the one who has ordained and brought about all these events. He has orchestrated this judgment that he's going to bring upon Israel. Zedekiah has rejected the Lord. By rejecting Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to be conquered, his army scattered, his sons slaughtered. His eyes actually put out, and you see exactly that in 2 Kings 25. Don't just take my word for it. This is what he prophesies. This is exactly what happens in 2 Kings 25. So Ezekiel has explained the riddle of the vine. We understand what's going on there, but he 
He hasn't gone back to that twig yet. He talked about a twig, you know, early on in those first couple of verses. He hasn't explained that yet. That is what he does in the last couple of verses here. Verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig or a twig, it's an interesting word there, from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. This is referring to Jehoiachin, okay? He was a young king when he began reigning, which is why he's talking about, you know, like a young twig. Uh, He's actually 18 when he begins reigning. He only reigns for three months, and then Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes him into captivity. Um, That's why he's talking about, you know, a small stem, a twig, a branch. He says, I will set it out. This is God. So this little twig, God's going to take it and set it out. He's going to plant this little twig of Jehoiachin, okay? That's what he's explaining here. Keep reading. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. Okay, so from that little twig, he's going to grow into his own tree, okay? So this Jehoiachinic, that sounds weird. This, this twig of Jehoiachin itself is going to grow, okay? He's going to grow, and then Yahweh is going to break off a twig from him, okay? So Jehoiachin, his little tree is going to grow and grow and grow, and a little twig is going to be broken off from that tree, okay? That is what's going on. Twig being planted, he grows another little twig from that tree. Then it says God is going to then take and plant that one, this descendant from Jehoiachin, this other little twig, and he's going to plant it, what does it say? On a high and lofty mountain, okay? Let's just consider a couple things here. What's, what is going on, okay? Let's slow down. First, this twig is a Davidic descendant, right? Coming from Jehoiachin, that's the line of David. So this twig, this is referring to a person, is Davidic. You track with me on that? That is very important. Why? Because all the promises of God are going to come through the Davidic king. Well, in context, things are not going well for the Davidic king. But there is going to come forth from this tree a Davidic descendant. You track with me? That is important. That is really good. That's what we need. Second. Do you remember, I don't fault you if, you if you don't, from last week, remember in those early chapters of Isaiah, how he talks about twigs and stumps and branches? You guys remember that? Maybe not, okay? Well, Isaiah 4 talks about the branch of the Lord. Isaiah 6 talks about uh, the seed of the stump. And he talks about this forest of Israel that's just going to be completely hacked down. Judgment is coming. But after judgment, a little twig plink, is going to appear. Okay, Isaiah uh, 11 talks about the shoot, the little twig from the stump of Jesse. So it's even clarifying, hey, this is a descendant of Jesse. This is Davidic. What am I trying to say here? Isaiah and Ezekiel are referring to the same thing. Judgment is coming now. The The metaphorical forest of Israel is going to be hacked down, and that includes the house of David. But from that hacked down forest is going to come forth, boink, a twig, a twig from the stump of Jesse. He is going to be this amazing king. I think another reason why he talks about twig is he's talking about relative obscurity. All right, maybe you're out in your yard or whatever, and you see just like a little tree that started. Like, I don't know. You don't really pay much attention to it because it's just like just a, little, just a little twig, right? It's no big deal. Well, do you remember Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. 
what does it say of him? Remember verse two? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root, same word in Isaiah 11, out of dry ground. All of these passages collectively are saying that the true Davidic king will not be born in a palace. He's not going to be raised in grandeur. In fact, he's going to come from an incredibly humble, lowly estate. We're not going to consider him much of anything. It's like a small little twig that you don't think much of. Ezekiel 17, verse 23. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, this twig, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. This is a royal tree. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. I mean, that's exactly what he does with Jesus, our Messiah, right? He brings, uh, excuse me, he makes high the low tree. He brings low the high tree like he just did with Jehoiachin, right? God is the one who does this. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. So this tree, what do we see? He's going to have cosmic significance. He's going to... uh, be this great tree, a noble tree, where every kind of bird and all the trees will know that this noble cedar demonstrates that Yahweh is the Lord. I think this demonstrates all the nations, Jews and also Gentiles, coming to the Lord. They will all come to this Messiah, this Davidic twig. There's so many other texts, I didn't want to slow down on this, that deal with the mountain of Israel. You guys have heard me talk about the prophets. I love talking about mountains, okay? Uh, because they're very important in the Old Testament storyline. You think of Mount Sinai, you think of the, Mount, uh, the mountain of the Lord in Isaiah 2. You think of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it is very, very important. This is Mount Zion from which the Messiah will rule and reign over all, everyone. Remember, this is being spoken in the context of exile, right? Ezekiel is giving Israel hope that God has not abandoned his people or his covenant promises. He's purposed that Jehoiachin would be taken into exile to preserve a branch from the house of David. He's doing this such that he can bring this twig from relative obscurity to rule and reign. And just so if you're not connecting all the dots there, the hope of the Davidic king, this messianic twig in Ezekiel 17, it's fulfilled in Christ. It is fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. I would argue in his first coming and also in his second coming. That's a remarkable passage, okay? Was that kind of like just like jet speed, like pfft. Do you kind of understand what's going on in Ezekiel 17, though? Hopefully it's relatively clear. I want to get to Ezekiel 21. We've got about 15, 20 minutes. Any questions about Ezekiel 17? Yes. It's certainly possible. Yeah, I haven't done an in-depth context to see, you know, one of the best ways to do that is see, okay, are there similar language, similar terms being used here? Um, Yeah, it's certainly possible, yeah. He was asking, um, is this what Jesus is referring to when he talks about the parable of the mustard seed that's growing into the great tree? Is that an intentional connection that Jesus is making? Um, My default would be yes, I just can't say that dogmatically. David, did you have a question? King of Judah. Yeah, so in context, is the northern kingdom, 
which we call Israel, has already been taken into captivity. They were taken in captivity 722 B.C. So Ezekiel is right around, let's just say, 600 B.C. Remember, we're counting backwards in years, not up the other way, right? So this is like 120 years after that. So yeah, he is specifically referring to um, Judah. And yeah, Jehoiachin is a king from there because the northern kingdom is already toast. They've been toast for 120 years. Yeah. Yes. I would, I would say yes. Yeah, I would very much think so. Yeah, I think the prophets, oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think the more and more you study, now, I mean, it's, it's different when, you know, like Isaiah and Micah are ministering at the same time, but if you compare Isaiah 2, 1 to 4, and Micah 4, 1 to 4, somewhere in there, it's literally like word for word the exact same message. Um, and it's this glorious message of hope on the other side of judgment. And so there's, an, there's like, well, who wrote first? Um, we can't say exactly because they're ministering on the same time. Is he quoting each other? Or it could just be God had them saying the exact same message. Um, but yeah, I would argue very much so that the prophets knew, they certainly knew um, the Pentateuch. Uh, I would argue they knew the historical books. And yeah, I, would, I very much would argue that Ezekiel is very familiar with Isaiah and is quoting very much from Isaiah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, man. Okay, last question. You can talk to me afterwards. Yeah, I don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think chronologically there's certain certainly things that happen afterwards. So... Big picture of the major prophets, I'd go Isaiah, Ezekiel, then Jeremiah. Um, but they talk about some overlapping things. But, yeah, no, there's certainly, because, I mean, Jeremiah sees the downfall of Jerusalem. He's there, right? Yeah. Yeah, so good questions. All right, if you have more, I'm more than happy to. I love, I love the prophets, okay? Um, I am not an expert in the prophets, but I think the more and more you study the prophets, you realize how amazing they are. So I'm more than happy to talk about the prophets, okay? All right, Ezekiel 21. Ezekiel 21, ESV chapter heading reads, the Lord has drawn his sword. What do you think this chapter is about? Yeah, judgment, right? Pretty clear. Captivity and exile, that is what is coming for Israel. Ezekiel's been saying the priests are evil, the prophets are evil, the king is evil, and they represent, they embody Israel as a whole. They have wicked leaders because they themselves are wicked. And I would just, side point of application, we have wicked leaders today because we are wicked. Um, I won't say any more on that. 21 verse 3. It says, and say to the land of Israel, thus says the Lord, behold, I am against you. This is God. And will draw my sword from its sheath and will cut off from you both righteous and wicked. The Lord's judgment is surely coming for Israel. Whatever righteous people are left will even be included in that judgment. You see that? In verse 3, I will cut off from you both righteous and wicked. I mean, just one, one principle of application you can just take from this over to today. Just because we are righteous, because we're united uh, by faith to Christ who is the righteous one, does that mean bad things won't happen? No, like, like there are righteous people, there is a righteous remnant, and judgment is still going to come for them. They are going to participate in that judgment. Um, I think it's just very clear proof that 
bad things from our perspective very much do happen to what we would say is good people, right? I think the Bible is very clear on that. I'm not going to read uh, verse all the way through verse 17. It all talks about the Lord's sword um, that is coming in judgment. It's polished for wrath. Which, by the way, what is the Lord's sword? In context, it's not a literal metallic sword that's, you know, a hundred miles long that comes down out of the clouds and hacks down people, okay? That's, that's not what the Lord's sword is. The Lord's sword in context is literally the king of Babylon, right? And his armies, okay? That is the judgment that is coming, right? The verses make that very clear. Verse 18, the word of the Lord came to me again. As for you, son of man, mark two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. I mean, it's amazing. God is even telling Ezekiel, like, hey, direct the king of Babylon's attack. Like, hey, mark out how the judgment is going to come. Verse 24, judgment is coming on Israel as a nation because they uncover, they display their sins. Verse 25 is where I want to spend the last 10 minutes. Really the start of where this messianic prophecy begins. Verse 25, and you, O profane wicked one, prince of Israel, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment. God here is zeroing in on the king of Israel. Now, we know, David, back to your question. This is Judah, okay? He's talking about um, which king? Jehoiachin is taken into captivity. Which king are we talking about? Last one. Zedekiah, okay? Zedekiah. He calls him a prince. Why do you think he calls him a prince, not a king? Because he's not actually really the king, right? His uncle, Jehoiachin, was the king. Zedekiah is this little puppet king that really has no power, does literally nothing, okay? He's like, you know, it's kind of like a subtle jab. It's like, you ain't even a king, you prince, right? Um, That's what's going on there. But you see here, Ezekiel is saying the Davidic line is evil, and it's destabilized to the point where they don't even have a king. They have this false king, this evil prince. Zedekiah is described as what? Profane and wicked. He actually leads Israel in their wickedness rather than being an example of righteousness to what the people should look to, right? This is wicked. He is evil. The people are guilty. The Davidic dynasty, those kings are guilty as such. What does he say? Your day has come, the time of your final punishment. There is no escaping this judgment. It is going to come. This is going to happen. Now ask yourself this question, okay? Consider this. If the Davidic dynasty is about to go down in flames, which it is, it kind of already has, it's in the process of going down in flames, okay? What is going to happen? What is God's agenda? How is he going to fulfill all his covenant promises, the promises he made to Abraham, the promises he made to David? We need the Davidic king for these promises to be fulfilled. Tracking with me? That's what we're asking, okay? Judgment's coming. What is going to happen? Verse 26. Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. He mentions a turban and a crown. Crown we understand, right? Like who wears the crown? King. King wears the crown. This is royal headpiece. That says you're the king, okay? Turban is very interesting here. Turban, the word here, is used 12 times in the Old Testament, and it always refers to the turban that the high priest would wear. 
always refers to, not talking about a kingly turban, but a priestly turban every other time in the Old Testament. In other words, the king is going to fall and the priest is going to fall with him. This is a complete destabilization of everything going on in Israel. The king is coming down. The priestly line is coming down. He's already talked about how the prophets are wicked. Okay, this is not going well. This is total and complete collapse of Israel, both with the king and with the priest. It says, things shall not remain as they are. Literally, it's, you know, this, not this. He's referring to the crown and the turban. These symbols of leadership will be taken down. He says, exalt that which is low, bring low that which is exalted. The entire order of society is going to be flipped on its head. This is a complete reversal. The destruction, judgment is total, okay? The king and the priest are going to be down in the dumps. Verse 27, a ruin, 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 I will make it. So just in case you didn't realize how bad things were, he's like, it's going to be a ruin. How much of like a ruin, uh, a ruin, ruin, ruin. Like, is this a ruin? Yes, okay. It's, kinda, it's actually rare in the uh, uh, Hebrew Old Testament where they'll use three words over and over. What's the one we all know? Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6, right? And what's the point? It's not that he's just like holy. It's not that he's really holy. It's like this, he's like the definition of holy. He's holy to the superlative. Well, this is not just like a little ruin, like you got to do some sweeping and cleaning up. Like this is complete, total ruin. Tracking with me? This is serious judgment. This is the priestly turban and the crown just being destroyed because of their sin. God is the one doing this through Babylon, through Nebuchadnezzar. But then there's a surprising turn in verse 27. Look there in verse 27. This also shall not be, or you could say this also will be no more. So what he's just mentioned, he's saying that there will come a time when this threefold ruin, this total and complete ruination will itself come to an end. In other words, this ruin won't be forever. It's not an eternal ruination, okay? There's coming a time when the ruin itself will end. When? He says, until he comes. The turban and crown will be a ruined desolation until he comes. Who's the he? Okay. I know it's a Sunday school answer. Jesus, yes, the Messiah, right? He is the one being referred to here. Do you guys remember Genesis 49.10? Mentioned that a couple weeks ago. It talks about how the scepter shall not depart from Judah, um, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, something like that. And then the next words, until he comes, until tribute comes to him, Shiloh. There's actually a Hebrew play on words here um, with Genesis 49 and uh, Ezekiel 21. This is an allusion going back to that passage. It's referring to the coming king from the tribe of Judah, from the Davidic line. Until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. This is not judgment. This is important, too. This is not judgment in the sense of, like, the Lord is going to, like, judge you and destroy you, like with the sword, which is what's going on in context here with Babylon, okay? That's not the judgment being referred to here. This is more of, like, legal authority. This is the one who is going to have the right to rule. He has judgment. The judgment, the legal authority is how I would put it, belongs to him. This is the one to whom kingship belongs to because Yahweh himself is going to give it to him. He has the right to rule and to reign and exercise judgment overall. Now, so tying it all together, this royal crown 
and the priestly turban. Both of those will be a ruin until the Messiah comes. He will be given all authority because he is not only king, he is also a great high priest. Fascinating. Similar, um, Ezekiel's doing similar to what David does in Psalm 110. You guys remember Psalm 110? The Lord said to my Lord. So David is talking about someone who is greater than him and he's the king, but who is distinct from Yahweh. It's a very clear uh, reference to another person in the Trinity. There's another one. And then he talks about how the kingly line is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who was, um, we see in Genesis 14, who's king and priest. And this is exactly what the author of Hebrews does, right? Not only is Christ our king, he's also our great high priest who offers the sacrifice of himself in our place. He is our mediator. He's the one who wears the king's crown and the priestly turban. So I think it's a fascinating passage, uh, really tucked away here. Uh, my former professor, Abner Chow, he summarized this passage well, I thought. I thought I'd just read it. He says, Ezekiel's point is that the convergence of king and priest in the Messiah is the only way leadership is restored, exile ends, and God's relationship with his people is fulfilled. The convergence of king and priest into one person, the Davidic Messiah. Is that amazing? I don't know. I, f I find that amazing. I love what the prophets do. There's a lot more going on uh, maybe than if you just read it quickly. It's like, I don't know exactly what's going on, but slow down, consider uh, the context, what is going on there. That's Ezekiel 17 and Ezekiel 21. I pray it was profitable. Um, if you have any more questions, I'm more than happy to talk to you afterwards. Next week, I'm going to be gone. Uh, and so Roman is going to be with you guys. He's going to look through uh, some passages in the wisdom literature. I'm not actually sure exactly what he's going to do. Um, there's seems to be a reference in Job, uh, also in Proverbs, certainly the Psalms. And so I left it. You know, there, there's all, I, I gave him, you know, a bunch of, it's like, hey, have your pick. You know, it's like, choose whatever you want. Um, tried to give him a lot of options there. So uh, then after that, we're going to look at a, pass, a couple of passages in Zechariah. Okay. Uh, so maybe even Zechariah is scarier than Ezekiel. It is for me. It's like, man, I don't know exactly what's going on here. Um, so Lord willing, look at, I think, Zechariah 3 and then also Zechariah 11. And so that should be hopefully a profitable time. So you're dismissed. Like I said, any questions, I'm more than happy to talk to you. Thank you.